As we finish our series on the book of Acts, and as Paul finishes his life in ministry, we've been asking ourselves what it means for us to finish well, like Paul. And as soon as you hear finishing well, you might think um, it's just a question for older folks, you know, because they're getting on, or folks facing a life-threatening illness, but it's not just a question for them. It's a question for all of us. Finishing well is a question for young and old, healthy or sick, because whether literally we have one minute more to live, or many, many years, we are beginning right now, finishing our life. And so as followers of Jesus in particular, what can Acts and Paul teach us about finishing well? You see on the screen what we've suggested so far the last couple of weeks. Keeping a clear conscience before God and man is a way we can finish well. Trusting in God alone is another way we finish well. And this morning, this morning I'm going to add the following to the list. We finish well when we focus on the resurrection. Finishing well means focusing on the resurrection. Now, we might be tempted to ask, I know I am, questions like the resurrection... Well, that's a really cool part of the story. Jesus comes out of the tomb. Whoa! But what about the cross? What about the crucifixion? Shouldn't shouldn't we focus on the crucifixion? Isn't the crucifixion more important than the resurrection? Those are questions I had this week, and maybe you do too when you see focus on the resurrection. And I think we'd be right to, to ask those questions. To be sure, hear me please, the crucifixion is obviously very important. Amen? Jesus gave His life on the cross. He died in our place. He died in place of all who believe as a ransom for many. His life paid the debt of sin and set us free. Jesus paid for our sin with His life. And by giving His life, Jesus made it right, made us right by making us righteous before God. And so, yes, the crucifixion is absolutely vital. Whatever you remember, whatever you hear me say this morning, please remember and hear this too. The fact that Jesus died is vital, crucial, necessary. It had to happen for our salvation. Nothing I say this morning is intended to detract from that amazing truth. But I'm going to suggest to you today, ask you to consider, struggle, wrestle with today that the resurrection is no less important. Jesus had to come back alive every bit as much as he had to die. And that message, I think, is often one we're not used to hearing, let alone sharing, as we witness Jesus to the world. The, the crucifixion tends to be emphasized in our message to the world as it should, but the resurrection doesn't always get its emphasis, its equal time with the crucifixion. 
as it should. Paul himself writes in his letter to the Corinthian church, he writes that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then our preaching, even our faith, is useless. Craig Blomberg of Denver Seminary puts it this way, no religion stands or falls, stands or falls with a claim about the resurrection of its founder in the way that Christianity does. So let's look at the, uh, maybe we can look at this morning's message as a, as a way, if we need to, to, to reclaim or rediscover the importance of the resurrection, what many scholars call even the cornerstone of Christianity. So are you ready? Can we have a little Easter in October? Is that okay? All right, let's do it. The entire book of Acts that we've been looking at, the entire book of Acts opens with Jesus alive and kicking. It opens with Jesus alive on the Mount of Olives with His disciples. It opens with two angels assuring the disciples that after Jesus ascended, that Jesus will come back alive. In the very next chapter, Acts 2, the resurrection, not so much the crucifixion, the resurrection forms the basis of Peter's appeal to repent and believe. One verse, only one verse of Peter's sermon on Pentecost deals with the crucifixion. Nine, nine verses focus on the resurrection. Go ahead, sometime today or sometime this week, if you like, read Acts 2 again. You, you almost get the idea that the crucifixion is but a part, a stepping stone toward the more centered story that Peter wants to talk about of the resurrection rather than the other way around. And so right from the beginning, Luke, our author of Acts, sets the entire story, sets his entire history of the first 30 years of the church on the foundation of Jesus is alive. In fact, in the New Testament, the word resurrection is used 45 times. Now, most of those times, as we might expect, are in the Gospels, 17 times in the Gospels. Of the remaining 28 times that resurrection appears, 10 times in Acts and 12 times in Paul's letters. Resurrection is clearly on Paul's mind. Just in Acts, which we've been studying in Acts 17, you remember, many of you, Paul is in Athens, and Luke tells us the Athenians get upset. Why? Because Paul was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. In Acts 23, Paul is before the Sanhedrin, remember? And he shouts out that he is on trial because of his hope in the resurrection. In Acts 24, Paul is before Governor Felix. And again, he talks about his hope in the resurrection. And we know he did the same thing two years later before Governor Festus in Acts 25. Because when explaining to Herod what Paul was claiming, Festus sums up Paul's message by telling Herod, Paul's claiming this dead guy named Jesus is alive. These examples and more are why theologians nearly unanimously agree. And believe me, when any group of theologians get together and unanimously agree on anything, it's sort of miraculous. So they all agree that Paul, indeed the New Testament, places the resurrection at the center of the Christian faith. So Paul is finishing well by, by focusing on the resurrection. And our next question then... Uh, the one I had this week, maybe you're there with me now, is why? Why is the resurrection so important? 
Why should our focus include at least the resurrection? Two reasons. First, the resurrection is important because it proves that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Absent the resurrection, we don't know whether the cross worked. In fact, without the resurrection, we'd be forced to conclude the cross didn't work. Let me try to tell a story to explain. Beginning in the Hebrew Bible, what some call the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, God put a picture in place. He put it right there in Torah. And the picture He put in place was how important it was to God, and so to us too, for God's people to know, for God's people to have proof that He forgives sins and that He had forgiven their sins. Beginning with the tabernacle. I see a picture of the tabernacle on the screen. And, and then continuing with the temple, here's what God did in Torah. He set aside one day each year called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur in Hebrew. And on that day, one animal was selected, a goat, and it was called a scapegoat. One animal was selected and used as a sacrifice on that day of atonement on behalf of all Israel. Here's how it worked. With, with great ceremony, the sins of all the people, you know, were, were placed on this one goat. So everybody was clear. I don't know how they did it exactly. We've lost the video footage. But somehow, with great pomp and circumstance, I'm sure, with everybody watching, the high priest all decked out, somehow, here's this goat, you know, poor goat. Boom. Make this the goat. Oh, it doesn't look much like a goat. Does anybody look like a goat? You, no, just kidding. Here's the goat. All the sins of the people are on this goat. Okay, so that's clear with all of us in assembly if we were in the tabernacle or temple. And then this goat would be driven outside of the city limits, out into the desert to die. Why go out into the desert? That's one big biblical picture of that's where God lives. God is the God of the desert. It's where we feel our need of God more, and that's where He is especially to meet our needs. Big biblical picture, God's in the desert. So that that, that offering of the goat, they put a bell around his neck so they could hear their sin clanging off into the desert. Ding, 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 ding. So that, that, that offering, they didn't kill it. That offering of the goat clanged off into the desert to God. There it went. And you'd hear it clanging in the distance. Ding, 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 ding. Goats off into the desert. After the goat sent into the desert, carrying the sins of the people, the people would then wait. And they would pray earnestly they would wait and they would pray holding their breath would god accept their sacrifice would he forgive their sins oh god please accept the sacrifice please forgive us now included in that tabernacle ceremony god placed a part, a section of how the people would know whether or not God accepted that sacrifice. How did they do that? After that goat was sent packing into the desert with the people's sin, 
the high priest himself would go into the Holy of Holies, right up next to the Ark of the Covenant, to plead with God on the people's behalf to accept that sacrifice and forgive the people. This was the one day all year that anyone went into the Holy of Holies. 364 days a year, nobody goes behind that curtain into the Holy of Holies. This is God. One day a year, the high priest and only the high priest could go in there and pray. People are praying outside. High priest is praying inside. Please forgive our sins. And guess what the proof was that God had accepted that sacrifice of the sin-laden goat in the desert and forgiven them. Guess what the proof was? The proof was if that high priest came back out alive. You laugh, but you know what they would do? I don't know if I've told you this before or not. If, if not, I'll tell you again. It's an amazing story. When that high priest would go in, you know what they'd do? They would tie a rope around his ankle in case God, you know, smite him, smote him down or he had a heart attack or whatever because they, then they'd have to drag his body out of there. See, and we lose, we thought, well, you know, if he dies, you know, just go in there and get him. Are you kidding me? You don't go in there. One day a year, only the high priest. So literally, that, you know, how would you like to be on that duty? It's like, okay, put the rope on there. It's like I think of coming up here and preaching or something with a rope on my leg. Off the, it kind of fills me with confidence that, well, what do you think is going to happen, you know? So literally, they'd be waiting with bating breath. I'll pray, 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 pray. Oh, God, forgive our sins. Protect that sacrifice. And finally, the high priest would come out, come out of the fold of that tent, and the people would see him in the court. The cheer that must have gone up could have been heard in the desert for miles. Yes, there he is. He did it. God accepted our sacrifice. We're forgiven. Whew. Yes! And then it was time for a huge party, and they'd eat the lamb and, and all the... Not the goat, because the goat's in the... Funny story is, uh, at least more than one time, apparently, in that whole ceremonial thing, we have history that records this. And it, Funny story is, uh, every once in a while, in that ceremony, at least early on, that goat, you know, would go clanging off into the desert, and the people would be waiting with bated breath, waiting with bated breath, and then the high priest would come out, you know, and everybody would be like, yes, and then guess what? Yeah, goats are pretty smart. They don't like to be in the desert. So the, the sins of the people come clanging back in. This is kind of ruin the whole thing. So the Sadducees, at least in the temple day, they had a fix for it. They hired a Zacchaeus to hide behind a rock. And when that goat came, get the goat. So you kind of rigged it, you know. That's the director's cut, I guess, of the... And God gave... That picture, that ceremony, that Day of Atonement, feast and sacrifice um, to his people at least, well, a thousand years before Jesus. Connect the picture. Centuries later, one called the Lamb of God was taken outside the city limits to die. And he carried with him the weight of the world's sin, including yours and mine. 
And God sacrificed him on a cross. And for the next three days, the universe waited and held its breath. Would God accept the sacrifice? Would he forgive the sins of his people? And this time, would he forgive them once and for all? And on the third day, the one the letter of Hebrews in particular especially calls high priest comes out of the tomb. Yes! God accepted the sacrifice. We're forgiven. Praise God. And along the way, did you notice what God did? He combined scapegoat and high priest in one. The high priest himself became the scapegoat for his people. He loves us that much. And Jesus, coming back from the dead, proves it worked. If he doesn't come out of that tomb, there's no proof. And so why is Paul constantly preaching the resurrection? Because it's the proof that we're now right with God. In the attempt on the part of some, even some Christians, to shy away from a literal resurrection because they feel it's an unnecessary stumbling block for some to believe. Oh, what a misguided attempt. They're messing around with the proof that Jesus' death worked. Jesus alive is the proof that we're now right with God. And that's why Paul leads so often with the resurrection. Hey, he says. That's a paraphrase. Hey, he's alive. That proves it. That proves Jesus is who he says he is and did what he says he did. How could Jesus alive be explained in any other way? His rising from the dead proves we're right with God. Or said in another way, when Paul proclaims the resurrection of Jesus, he's offering proof that all who believe in Jesus are right with God. And so, you want to be right with God? Here's the proof you can be. Jesus is alive. Amen? Not too long ago, some of you remember maybe, we talked about felt needs evangelism versus real needs evangelism. Do you remember? On the outskirts of your mind, maybe this will help. We concluded, or at least I did, and offered to you to wrestle with that we can do evangelism both with a taco and with the text. Do you remember? People can come to know Jesus through us when in His name we meet felt needs, like like, like hunger. And people can come to know Jesus through us when we teach them objective truth, like the creation, the fall, and a God who is holy. Here, Paul gives us a healthy dose of objective truth. Jesus is alive. He was indeed raised from the dead. Now, we still, in my strong opinion, need to do both. Introduce people to Jesus through meeting felt needs and through teaching them what is rock-solid, absolute truth. But I came across something from Aegis Fernando, a commentator on Acts. Fernando says this, fascinated me and i think it has the ring of truth see if you agree fernando says after 21 years of evangelistic ministry with non-christians i have come to the conclusion that most people 
come to Christ in order to have a felt need met, but they stay with Christ because they have come to believe the gospel is true. Now, since we want people to both come to Christ, and then when they get to Him, stay with Christ, we want that both, yes? Maybe we should be about both meeting felt needs and teaching them the gospel is true. And here's the cool P.S. about the resurrection. I know I said Jesus alive is like this big objective truth, but here's the good thing, and it is. But here's the cool thing about the resurrection. You had that objective truth. Jesus is alive. He came out of that grave. He really did, literally. And because he did, and only because he did, we'll just look at him. He's no longer dead. He's alive. And let me tell you what, in terms of the felt needs realm, fixing the death problem, fixing death, well, that's meeting one whale of a felt need, don't you think? And that brings us to our next point. One reason why Paul focuses on the resurrection is proof. The resurrection proves the cross worked. Another reason why Paul focuses on the resurrection is power. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it this way. Anyone, anyone in this room, anyone that has ever lived, really, we have the power to end life. We can end life. That's not a special, unique power. People have been doing that, ending life, ever since Cain and Abel. And I want to be careful here. But from that angle at least, from that window at least, Jesus ending his life by handing himself over to be killed, as important, as difficult, as amazing, that the perfect one would do that. But that act of stepping in front of a bus, that act of taking our life, well, any human being has the power to hand themselves over to death, don't we? Not saying it's easy, but let me give the other piece and maybe you'll see it by comparison. What about the resurrection? Can just anybody do that? No. Only one has that kind of power, God. Now, that's a special, unique power, power over death. And if we talk only of the crucifixion and not about the resurrection, do we miss out on the very real power of God? See, the story goes like this. As Paul mentions in Acts 26, Israel has been hoping for the resurrection of the dead at least since Moses. So for more than a thousand years, Israel's hope was that one day all would be raised from the dead, the wicked to be judged, and the righteous to live forever. That's their hope, to be vindicated before their enemies and to themselves be able to live together. And then Jesus comes along, one of them a Jewish rabbi, a descendant of David, no less. Jesus, an Israelite, comes into that Israelite hope. He comes along and God raises him from the dead. And right there in Jesus, Israel's hope in the resurrection of the dead finally begins to be realized. See, Israel believed when the Messiah came, the end times, what theologians call the eschaton, the last time, 
Eschatology is the study of last things, end things. Israel believed that when Messiah came, all of those end times things right away, immediately, fully realized would come with him. And their hope in the resurrection of the dead would be fully realized when he came. What Israel didn't know is that the Messiah would come, and yet there would be a delay. Now about 2,000 years and running, there would be a delay between the Messiah coming and the full measure of all that end-time eschatological power, including the resurrection of the dead. And so what happened, what happened with Jesus when he was raised from the dead is amazing. He's the first one to experience Israel's hope in the resurrection of the end-time dead. It's as if that end-time power, which is still in our future, their future too, it's as if that end-time power of the resurrection of all the dead reached back from the future, straining into history, reached back from the future and into the tomb of Jesus. Theologian George Alton Ladd puts it this way, with the resurrection of Jesus, eternal life appeared in the midst of mortality. The resurrection of Jesus is an eschatological event that occurred in history. In some real sense, the events that belong to the end of the age and the eschatological consummation, say that three times quickly, those amazing things belonging to the end have invaded history. And why not with a timeless God? In other words, the awesome power of end times resurrection of all the dead broke into history early. First, when God raised Jesus from the dead. And here's the thing. That invading, amazing kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. End times power is still invading history today. Jesus' resurrection opened the door to the eschaton, to the eschatological power. We have in the resurrection of Jesus today continued access to this power of life. And it's that same power that enables us today to withstand the attacks that come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. See, Jesus being raised from the dead means a means a power that has been unleashed in human history. And we as followers of Jesus have access to this power. Power over sin and chaos. Sometimes when the church frets and hides and wrings her hand over sin, I wonder if she's forgotten the power she has in Christ. The same power that that raised Jesus from the dead. Wow, what power! Do we even begin to scratch the surface, to know, to experience, to share the power that we have right now to defeat sin. Have we forgotten just how real that power is? One of my favorite pictures, one of my favorite pictures of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection comes from Acts 2, verse 24. It's where Peter stands up and says in that Pentecostal sermon, God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, there's an amazing wordplay going on here in uh, the original Greek. The word for agony there is Odin. And a more literal translation of Odin is pangs. 
pangs of death. And there's a delightful wordplay here with Odin, because Odin isn't normally used to describe the pain or the pangs that go with death. Guess where the word Odin appears a lot? If you were a first century Greek-speaking person and you heard the word Odin, where the word Odin is used a whole lot is to describe the pangs of childbirth. The birth agony. Odin, pangs of new life of a mother giving birth, which is about as opposite of death as you can get. A new beginning instead of a final end. And what a vivid picture of the kind of power that God has over death. God forces, God forced death to give birth to life. G. Bertram paraphrases Acts 24 this way. The abyss can no more hold on to the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. I love that. And ladies, you know, when it's time, that baby's coming. Mothers, at least. You know this, yes? Nothing's keeping that baby coming when it's time for that baby to come. Right, moms? You know, it's time. Push! And and pity, pity the poor doctor who tells you to hold off on pushing, yes? It's impossible. You've got to come. And that's the nature of that eschaton reaching power, resurrection power of Jesus. When it breaks through, nothing can stop it. It's inevitable, and it's here now. So what does all this mean for us today? There Several directions we could go, but the interest of time, let me pick one or two first. When we at least season our witness with the resurrection, maybe even lead with the resurrection, at least include the story of the resurrection, talk about that power, we may, we may find yet another largely untapped, powerful way to introduce Jesus to someone. Let me, try to de- let me try to demonstrate. Uh-oh, here he comes. Okay. How you doing? My name's Todd. This is Paul. Paul Pagan. We'll call him Paul Pagan. How you doing, Paul Pagan, Mr. Pagan? Okay. Um, listen, we've got a sin problem. You know, I've got a sin problem. You've got a sin problem. Someone with a cell phone right now especially has a sin problem. <laughs> I'm sorry, please don't leave the church over there remark. I just I love you. Oh, it's George's neighbor, it's okay. We've got a sin problem. I've got the answer. I've got the answer to our sin problem. I've got the answer to your sin problem. It's the cross of Christ. Okay, is everything I said true? Might it be an effective way to evangelize? What argument might it also though raise or beg when you approach someone? Tell them they got a sin problem. Maybe they don't know that yet. They got an argument on your hands of whether they need anything outside of their. Let me try again. Paul Pagan. Let's find a. Let's find a lady. Heather. Heather Heathen. <laughs> How are you this morning? Good. Death is just been plaguing humanity for 
well since it began. Death is this huge problem. I mean, despite all our technology, everything we can do, I mean, we still, death is just, I've got the answer. i got the answer to death. Someone shared it with me. It's the resurrection of the dead. Jesus was the first one to experience. People saw him. Do you like to experience that too? Is that a little different? Focusing, focusing on the resurrection of Jesus in evangelism. Uh, as soon as I say something like this, that's the formula now. No one ever talk about the... Yeah. Look for the right time. Look for the right instance. Often focusing on the resurrection of Jesus at least might be a good idea. Paul thought it was and, and, and he did all right. <laughs> Second... We'll close here. We need to remember that when God saves and redeems us, He saves and redeems all of us, spirit and body, spiritual and physical realm. We tend to lose focus of that sometimes, I think. Kind of like with the crucifixion, resurrection, resurrection. Our tendency is to focus on the spiritual and our spiritual well-being and kind of leave the physical behind. We, often it seems to me we tend to draw a sharp distinction between the spiritual realm, you know, realm over there and the physical realm over there. And we tend to think of the spiritual realm, well, that's like the godly spiritual, we're free realm. And we tend to think of the physical realm as, ew, yucky, physical, moose and flesh. not biblical so maybe but maybe that's why we tend to emphasize the crucifixion over and above the resurrection because in a way the crucifixion represents our spiritual salvation our souls were saved that day on the cross amen but what about our physical salvation ah the resurrection there he is look at him alive Made whole and new, flesh and blood. Our physical bodies are saved, renewed, redeemed too. See, this more holistic view of what it means to be a human being made in God's image, spirit, and in Jesus especially, body in God's image, better captures who we are. It's who we are. We're spirit and body. And so if we only preach and teach the crucifixion, we miss an important half of who we are. The resurrection completes God's redemption of all of every part of us, including our bodies. God loves bodies and physicality and stuff. He loved it so much that He became, in Christ Jesus, He took on, for the first time, this will make your theological thing, He took on physicality. Now I sound like a football player. There's a physicality part. I, I don't even know if that's a word. But you see what God did? He loves stuff so much that an entirely spiritual being up to that point took on into the Godhead a physical component. I mean, let me ask you, does Jesus still have his physical body, do you think? Well, last we saw him, he did. He didn't wink out into some Aladdin genie lamp smoke and 
And we get a big picture from John in Revelation post-ascension. There he stands looking like a lamb who has been slain. Kind of hard for smoke to look like that. I think he's still physical. I think he's still a human being. Perfect. The first. We need both the cross and resurrection. And good news for you this morning, God gives us both. And we're fully, completely, body and soul, redeemed and made new. And like I said, this is needed good news to a world reeling from not only spiritual sickness, but many, many physical, practical hurts and pains as well. And God's got both the spiritual realm and physical realm covered with the cross and resurrection. Right, It's time to go. And so we finish well. We finish well when we strive to keep our conscience clear before God and human beings. We finish well when we trust in God above all. And we finish well when we keep our eyes not only on the cross, but also on the empty tomb. Because it's the resurrection that proves the cross worked. It proves He forgives us. And it's the resurrection that throws open the eschatological door to true power over sin and death and chaos and hurts and pains today in this life right now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for the amazing gift that you gave us in your only Son, Jesus. Thank you for taking his life as a replacement and atoning sacrifice for our sin, for my sin. And, oh, Father, thank You for proving that it worked by giving us Jesus back alive in the flesh. And thank You, Father, that in that act, that amazing reach of the power of life, even over death, that You give us today, right now, true power to bring order from chaos and life to death and to help people who are hurting with the very power of God so that they might know you and know salvation in your son Jesus Christ alone. Father, we pray this in the matchless powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand to receive God's blessing, please? His benediction. The priestly blessing from number 6, Paul quotes it too. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and give you His peace, His shalom. In Jesus' name, Amen. Enjoy this beautiful fall day. Amen. God bless you guys.